0: All right, so we are going to start. We'll, we'll read a couple of verses Hit a, uh, in, in Exodus chapter 12, hit a couple high spots where we ended last week, and then we're going to take our excursus concerning the date of the Exodus. Um, this can be a very large topic. I'm trying to very much boil it down. We'll only spend tonight talking about it. We could spend weeks talking about it. Um, but feel free to, to pause, ask questions, etc. as we work our way through. But... Um, what I w- would like to do as we begin is draw your attention back to the text where we left off last week, Exodus 12, verse 40 to 42, and we we didn't uh, we read this passage, didn't spend a lot of time commenting on it, but this is our springboard into our excursus here this evening. So Exodus 12, chapter 12, verse 40. It says now the sojourning of the children of israel who dwelt in egypt was 430 years and it came to pass at the end of 430 years that the uh, even the self-same day it came to pass that all the hosts of the lord went out from the land of egypt he goes on to say that this is of course a night much to be observed unto the lord for bringing them out of the land of egypt this is that night of the lord to be observed uh, of all the children of israel and all their generations so notice in particular the timing of the Exodus. Last time, if you were with us, we talked through um, how Pharaoh initiates the Exodus after the tenth plague, and we looked at the start, of, uh, the Exodus. Excuse me, the size of the Exodus. But what we didn't have time to talk about last week, but this is again our springboard for this week, is the span until the Exodus. In other words, verses forty and forty-one in particular draw our attention to this divine timeline that God promised all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 15 and it will be reconfirmed later in the book of Exodus in chapter 6 where we see four generations are recorded and we'll get to that it's a genealogy it's the genealogy of Moses and Aaron we'll talk about it when we get there but those passages uh, along with this one highlight the fact that God made a promise and he kept it and according to this passage even to the selfsame day it came to pass. In other words, it was exactly 430 years, the, the time span of the sojourn of the children of Israel in the land of Egypt. And so, again, what's fascinating is, is the, the timeline, this claim is important because, as we'll talk about tonight, the timing, the date of the Exodus is a matter of great debate. But according to this text, the timing of the Exodus is proof positive of the faithfulness of God that he made a promise, uh, you know, centuries before, and he kept the promise to the self same day, right on time. And as I often quote my dad, he says, God's never early, never late, he's always on time. And, you know, here's a good example of that. So again, this is profound when we were, if we were to consider the centuries that passed between the promise that was made and the promise being fulfilled. And consider how many times the people would have been tempted to doubt God and his word during those centuries, yet in the end as always god is true to his promises and so that's what begins our excursus is to talk about the timing of the exodus and so again th- this is important for us to to understand because it's, a, it's such a, a a pillar of old testament chronology so I, what i'd like to do for just the next few minutes before we wrap it up for tonight and, and go home and start a fire and stay warm <laughs> um I want to talk about the purpose. Why are we taking an excursus here? Why are we talking about this? All right, First, I just want to set the, uh, the, the table, if you will, and, and describe why this is important. Second, we'll just work through the primary arguments of each position. There's a, there's a plethora of positions out there. We're just going to t- compare and contrast the two big ones that everybody debates about, the late date and early date theories. And the primary arguments that they use in support of those theories, and then of course, uh, you know, we'll summarize by proposing a position, which you'll see as we work our way through. I'm, I'm uh, clearly a an early date guy, but we'll we'll describe it as we go. All right. So, with that said, again, the purpose of this excursus, I, I alluded to this a little bit last week, but the the argument over when the Exodus occurred uh, may sound superfluous, kind of like a, 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 a I don't know, a debate that nobody cares about that doesn't ultimately matter. Yet in the reality, the core of the argument revolves around the question of whether or not the Bible can be trusted. It is an important argument because it's one of the number one quote-unquote evidences that is used by critics and secularists against the Bible, and they try to disprove the Bible by proving the late-date theory. And so, there's, and again, it's more complicated than that, but it is an important subject because of that. So though the views are manifold, the debate rages largely between two positions, which we're going to compare uh, this evening. The early date, which is... You'll see different dates. Typically, it's 1446. Sometimes people will say 47. Uh, and There's a fudge factor of a year there. But the traditional date, 1446, is is the early date, and we'll talk about that. The other big... Theory is known as the late date theory, which approximates right around 1250 BC or about 200 years later. Okay, so there's a difference here of two centuries of when this happened early date, late date. And historically speaking, the early date for the Exodus was assumed by all Bible scholars uh, because it has the most clearly stated biblical support. But the late date theory roots back to what I again I would call the subjective findings of secular archaeologists uh, from the late 18 and and throughout the 1900s particularly Kathleen Kenyon and uh, Israel Finkelstein he's actually still alive and well working uh, in Israel today but there's a lot of secular archaeologists that have lent, lent a lot of support to the late date theory which has really caused it to really bloom and blossom in, in scholarship. Many scholars hold to that now, um, and they've, they've kind of abandoned the 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 older, more trustworthy position of the early date theory. So again, this issue has become such a hot topic, and it's so confusing because there is so much literature on this. Like I said, I'm trying to boil this down to an hour. There are volumes upon volumes written to defend both positions and argue through the evidence, it can get very muddled very fast. And because it's such a hot topic and confusing issue, many evangelicals even have just discarded the historic reliability of the Exodus and the conquest altogether. Uh, there's a introduction to the Old Testament known as the World and the Word that uh, has an interesting article on this where it just works through this and how there's so much even in the evangelical camp. Right, and Traditionally, this is becoming eroded once again in recent decades but traditionally the term evangelical the definition of that term is that they believe in salvation by grace through faith right the evangel but they also hold to biblical inerrancy that the bible is inerrant it's true in all of its parts well much of evangelicalism has started to walk away from a hard you know strict definition of, of biblical inerrancy and one of the primary issues at play is this issue. They say, well, because we just don't know, right, because all the experts today say that the exodus, you know, didn't occur or it didn't occur when the Bible says it occurred, then, well, we can trust the Bible when it comes to Jesus and, you know, the resurrection and the crucifixion, but we can't really trust it when it comes to history, when it comes to, you know, the, the storyline, some of the archaeology, you know, and so they've really walked away from, you know, a, a firm stance on biblical inerrancy. So again, that's why this excursus matters, it, it, where I'm, I'm attempting to introduce to you and summarize the debate, which has raged for so long, but it's, again, far from irrelevant or insignificant because our view of the Bible's credibility is actually at stake, and so it, it is important. So with that said, let's just jump right into the late-date theory, and there's three primary pieces of evidence that they're going to use to argue for their position, first the city of ramesses mentioned in exodus chapter 1 verse 11. Second, the merneptah stella i'll uh, show you a picture of that tell you what that is in just a minute and then how they interpret the archaeology of the conquest all right so in other words these are their big foundation stones if you will for their arguments it is it, it, their entire arguments or argument and all, all of their system rests upon these three pieces of evidence but you examine these three pieces of evidence and you soon discover that their arguments are not that strong um, so it's really more of a peer pressure amongst archaeologists that leads to so much of an acceptance of the late date theory all right so what are these three well let me explain them first the city of ramesses now if you recall this i mentioned it in brief when we were back in exodus chapter one but i just told you we'd talk about it later so here we are talking about it later but the city of Ramesses is mentioned in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 11, and it's the, one of the cities that the children of Israel were building, and so <clears throat> uh, it's d- clearly described as, as built by you know, the enslaved Hebrews. But the assumption is then made that the city of Ramesses must correspond to the famous uh, pharaoh of the 19th dynasty known as Ramesses II. All right? Now, that, that's based upon a lot of assumptions, in other words, they're saying, hey, look, well, there it is, Ramses in the text. It must be that Ramesses. And they ignore the fact that there's an other ways to explain that. First, the fact that Ramesses was a common name. Okay, could be a lot of different Ramesses. This is the most famous Ramesses which, in, in Egyptian history, which is why they immediately want to say, well, hey, if you've got you know, a city named after you, it's got to be that guy. Well, that guy is the 19th dynasty. That's where they get the 1250 date okay, is if Ramesses is the guy that they're building the city for, then, you know, Ramesses II, Pharaoh of the 19th dynasty, then that's their hard, you know, data point. Does that make sense? They say, well, if that's the Pharaoh of the Exodus, then the Exodus has to occur 1250 BC, right? That's their, in fact, this is their largest argument. But like I said, Ramesses uh, is a common name. It doesn't have to mean Ramesses II, Second. So they still have to prove that. But then secondly, even if it refers to Ramesses II, then the Bible may be speaking proleptically. Now, are you familiar with that term? To speak proleptically, for instance, if I tell you a story about my wife when she was four years old, I'm speaking proleptically. Because at four years old, was she my wife? No, we didn't get married till way later. But I'm telling you right now she's my wife. But I'm going to tell you about a story about my wife before she was known as my wife that's speaking proleptically the bible does that all the time you ever heard of the town bethel all right bethel was renamed through history and it was named because of you know a special event that occurred there but it was known as Luz before that right you ever heard of istanbul or constantinople or byzantium right those it's the same city it's just been renamed multiple times through history in other words if it's even speaking of Ramesses II, you can still argue that it's speaking proleptically. In other words, this is the cornerstone argument for the late date theory, but it's not that strong of a of an argument. In other words, you can easily explain that reference other ways, all right? So it's not as airtight as, as they would like you to believe. So second major piece of of, of evidence for the late date theory is the Merneptah Now, again... They argue that if Ramesses II is the pharaoh of the oppression, then Merneptah, son of Ramesses II, is the pharaoh of the Exodus. All right, so I think I said that wrong earlier. Ramesses, they don't argue that Ramesses was the pharaoh of the Exodus, but the of the oppression in Exodus chapter one. I think I misspoke on that a second ago. So they would argue that Ramesses II is the pharaoh in place in Exodus chapter one, the pharaoh that enslaves the people, makes them build cities, that sort of thing. But that his son, Merneptah, is the one who's the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Now, the reason they argue that is because of this stela that has been discovered, known as the Merneptah stela. It's an Egyptian inscription from Pharaoh Merneptah. Merneptah ruled from 1211 to 1208 BC. This inscription was discovered in 1896 and is currently housed in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Here's a picture of the Merneptah stela. What this is is a, and you can see, you know, the picture on the top, perhaps, uh, that would be Pharaoh Merneptah and his armies facing enemies. So what the Merneptah Stella is, it's a commemoration of the military exploits of Pharaoh Merneptah. And the inscription describes several military campaigns that Merneptah conducted, particularly in the land of Canaan. But what's interesting is it mentions in the inscription the uh, nation of Israel. It mentions the, uh, the the word Israel. In fact, this is the, as far as I know, this is the oldest archaeological discovery that uses the term Israel, the name Israel, the word Israel. It shows up many times elsewhere, but this is the earliest dated one. But here's how they argue. The uh, stella inscription describes Israel. The way it's described in the stela is it describes Israel as an unsettled people or a people group rather than an established nation thus the late date theorists claim that this fits well with the timeline of israel and canaan but not yet established all right in other words they, they try to say all right if ramesses is the oppression you know the pharaoh of the oppression then his son merneptah was the pharaoh of the exodus and then you know it it proves that when he invaded you know canaan then Voila, Israel was there. It fits the timeline. Now, as we'll see, it doesn't actually fit the timeline that well. Do you, you got a hand up? Uh, yeah, but based on what was going on <clears throat> at the time of the judges, which I always thought was around 1250, 1200, yep. wouldn't you consider them an unsettled nation? Yes, no- yep, exactly. In other words, this is going to be the primary difference between the late date and early date, is we're looking at the same evidence, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, well, almost. We include the Amarna letters. I'll talk about that in a second. They do not. They just throw them out and say, well, it doesn't apply. And it's like, well, but if that applies, then it proves our point, not their point. But but other than the Amarna letters, we're looking at the same evidence. But you're right. We would interpret it differently. And we would say, yes, Israel is in the land. Yes, they're an unsettled people. But that's the judges' period. And we'll talk about it more in a minute. But what they, again, it's, it doesn't fit the timeline near as well as they think because what did israel do when they left egypt yeah for 40 years and then they went into the land all right and the and that time period doesn't fit quite as neatly as they you know want you to to believe but again that's their second big piece of evidence so if you don't understand the arguments then you just read oh wow well if the merneptus Stella proves it then it proves it right end of argument well, it's not that simple. So then third, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment, but their third, the third major piece of, of evidence is uh, the archaeology of the conquest. In other words, they're looking at the destruction layers of conquest cities in the land of Israel, cities such as Lachish, Debir, Hatzor, Bethel, and others. And they claim that allegedly these indicate destruction that occurs in the mid-1200s. So again, as Gordy pointed out, and you're familiar with this, a destruction layer, right? I know you are because you just finished watching a bunch of Expedition Bible, right? Joel Kramer. Um, <clears throat> but Joel Kramer actually uses this analogy. You know what a tell is? The word tell is these, these big mounds in ancient Israel, modern Israel. Um, a tell is, the, it's, I think it's Arabic. It's an Arabic word for hill or mound. But it, they represent sites of ancient cities because what happened is you had to build a city, right? Everything's about location, location, location. You need to be in a defensible position somewhere that has water. So if a city is built, but it's later destroyed, it's going to be rebuilt on the same spot. Why? Because of the defensible position in the water. Like you have to build a city there. And so as a result, there are layers of cities. And so over time, you fast forward 2,000 years, you have, in some cases, we have 20 cities that have been built on top of each other, upon you know, the ruins of the prior city. And oftentimes, what they'll do is, when, when a city is destroyed, they'll just come in, they'll level it, right? They'll kind of push down the walls, level everything out, bring in some dirt, maybe, and then rebuild right on top of it. And so what happens is, when you do archaeology, you cut into the tell. And it's like cut, cutting into a layer cake, right? My, my girls are really getting into baking, and they like layer cakes, Right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right, it's a wonderful thing, right? But when you cut into a layer cake and you expose the inside, you can see the layers, right? Well, that's what an archaeologist does. They will come and they will do what is called a vertical cut, and they'll go right down the tell, And they try and be careful not to disturb, you know, too much along the way. But the point is, they study what is left behind. It's called a bulk. And they study the side of the hill, and they look at the layers. Well, destruction layers are obvious because they're black, there are layers of ash because the city was burned, and it, and you can't miss it. I mean, it, it's very obvious. There's a good one at Jericho that we were that was pointed out to us when we were there. Is you just cut right down, boom. I mean, and there and the ash layer at Jericho, by the way, is like one of the large, it is I think he said the largest ash layer they've ever discovered. It's like a five foot ash layer. It's huge. And but what's fascinating is that you know you can find the destruction layer. Well, then they dig in that layer. They pull out pottery, and then they use that pottery to date the layer. Does that make sense? Now, if, if they're fortunate, then they are digging around in there and they find an inscription. Or they find, you know, uh, something that can, you can date. So for instance, in, in digging in Jericho, they can dig around and they'll find sometimes they'll find scarabs, which is actually they're, they're, it's like an insignia of an Egyptian pharaoh. And that was an official insignia that may have been part of uh you know delivery that was there particularly you know if it was a royal edict something like that which is what the Amarna letters are we'll get to those in a second the point is if you find an inscription like that well then it's really helpful because you can now date the layer right because you know that when that was destroyed you know that ex, you know that uh, pharaoh and we can cross reference figure out when that pharaoh lived and ruled and we say well it had to be you know, at least right around that time or it couldn't have been you know, before that time or whatever. And so that's how they date layers. And, and the pottery, this is complicated. We could get lost in this. But they use pottery to date. In fact, the guy who invented the dating system for pottery is uh, a guy by the name of John Garstang. And he's the guy who first dug at Jericho. And he said it fits the biblical evidence. It was Kathleen Kenyon came along later and redated it. Um, But you can tell the date of the pottery. It's kind of like, I mean, I know some of you guys are into cars, right? And you can look at a car and the body of the car, the model of the car, and at a glance, you can at least discern what decade it came from. Pottery pottery is the exact same way. Is that over time, pottery changed. (laughs) The ability to make pottery got better. New techniques were added that weren't known prior. Does that make sense? So you can get a piece of pottery, and depending on the size, et cetera, you can date it based upon the pottery within a margin of about fifty years typically they'll go fifty years to pretty much you know hundred years for sure but but they'll that's kind of their you know their error margin of error if you will, as they're doing pottery. well, the point is they do all these digs in these destruction layers and they say, well, all this destruction occurred in the twelve hundreds that must be what the Bible describes as the conquest. So the conquest didn't happen until 1200s. So we have to late date the Exodus. However, they overlooked the fact that if you continue to read the Bible, first, in the conquest, were was there a lot of destruction? Yes, but only in three locations that actually the Bible says were burned. Rather, what God said outside of that, he says, I'm going to give you cities to dwell in that you didn't build. I'm going to give you vineyards to eat from that you didn't plant. In other words, God was actually going to give them the land in the conquest largely intact. Now there were major destructions at three locations. Jericho, Ai, Ai, and Hatzor. Those are the only three cities that are described in the book of Joshua as having been burned with a layer. You know, In other words, there would be a clear burn layer where we would see ash, etc. And we'll get to those in a moment, but those are the three cities that we find it in. But all these cities, Lachish, Debir, Hazor, Bethel, all of them do show burn layers in the 1200s. But keep reading. What's happening in the Bible during the 1200s? You just mentioned earlier. After jail hammered that guy to the ground, Barak went on up, and it said he destroyed the king Jabin who lived in Hazor. That's right. You would expect a burn layer there, I would think. That's exactly right. In other words, we have biblical evidence of events that were transpiring in the twelve hundreds that led to destruction of the cities, but it's not the conquest; it's the Judges period, which guess what happened a couple hundred years later. So it fits the timeline perfectly, all right? So, again, we're not denying that there's destruction layers in those cities that date to 1200. We're, but we are denying that it's referring to the conquest, that those destructions occurred during the Judges period, not the conquest period. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, think it be. <clears throat> I got the couple of power burned. That's right. So read the book of Judges sometime, right? And I know Simone's not here tonight, but... Simone, right, and the Women's Bible Study, is going through the Book of Judges right now, and there's a lot of evidence of battles and burnings and destruction happening all over the land. And so, again, we would suspect, well, you know, if we were doing archaeology, well, sure, you're going to find a lot of burn layers in the 1200s, but it's not referring to the conquest, it's referring to the time period of the Judges, all right? So, if that's the case, let's then summarize the early date theory, and again, we're looking at four primary pieces of evidence that are, are going to argue for the, the early date theory. Uh, and I'm leaning heavy upon a very helpful article, Luxem Bible Dictionary, uh, summarizes this pretty well. But the early date theory would go to 1446. There's four pieces of evidence. First, chronological notation that occurs at 1 Kings chapter 6. Second, the archaeology of the conquest, which again, as we just described, we see destruction in the 1200s but that would be dated to the period of the judges we then would also acknowledge at least the possibility that the amarna letters are talking about israel and the conquest and then we look again at the Merneptah stella and we interpret it differently all right so let's look briefly at these three or four pieces of evidence so first of all um, I mean I can read it real quick I kind of give it to you in the slide but the pillar piece of, of argumentation for the early day theory comes from 1st Kings 6 and verse 1 1st Kings 6 1 says and it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziph which is in the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord all right? <clears throat> In other words, that text tells us explicitly that Solomon's reign, the fourth year of Solomon's reign, corresponds exactly to 480 years after the Exodus. All right? That's a really clear biblical statement, which your late-date theorists will take uh, allegorically. And they'll say, well, 480 is just a typical number. It's just a round number. It's telling you about an ideal number, something like that. But they won't take it as a literal hard number because it'll mess up their dates, right? But if you take it as a literal hard number, then you have to go to the late date theory, or I'm sorry, the early date theory, back to the 1400s. We know this because we have Assyrian records that list kings, not only Assyrian kings, but then they also list a couple of Israeli kings. It's really interesting. Uh, that's another whole you know, lecture for another time. But we have Assyrian records that we can cross-reference with, and they name Israeli kings. And so we can, then we know which Assyrian king was contemporary to which Israeli king. Now that's our external cross-reference system. And so we can plot Solomon's fourth year, the fourth year of Solomon's reign, can be confidently set at 966 B.C. And, and really, there's no one that argues with that. You know, like I said, even the, the late-date theorists will acknowledge that that is the, the reign of Solomon, but they'll just take the 480 number and, and interpret it, you know, figuratively and something like that. But, again, if we take this data point at 966 for Solomon's fourth year and we back it up, then we get 1446. That is the Exodus. So that's the clearest biblical chronology statement given anywhere in the scripture as to the timing of the Exodus. Well again, if we take that as uh, true biblical data, then we start looking at the evidence and say okay, does the evidence fit? Again, we would then look at the archaeology of the conquest. I already kind of built this point so we can make it quick, but when interpreted correctly, archaeological destruction layers in the uh, land of Israel fit well with this timeline. There are a lot of destruction layers in the 1200s, but we would say that dates to the period of the judges. But we do find three burn layers that date back to 1400s, and they're the three burn layers which, guess what, are the ones that tell us in the book of Joshua the three cities that were burned, Jericho, Ai, and Hatzor. All right, so the archaeology of the conquest fits really well. Again, uh, I mentioned this before, and I've given a whole lecture to it in the past. I'd love to lecture on it again. Uh, Joel Kramer, in fact, has a really good video on it. This is one of the first videos he did on unearthing Jericho, he calls it. But the archaeology at Jericho is very controversial, but the controversy roots back to Kathleen Kenyon. As I mentioned earlier, uh, she was working there in the 1950s. Long story short, she was the Michael Jordan of archaeology in her day. All right, It was kind of like you don't disagree with Kathleen Kenyon. right? She's like, if she speaks it, it's gospel truth. right? That was... So when she changed the date, because there was somebody who dug there before her, the guy who invented the system of, of dating by pottery, John Garstein. And when he dug there, he said, boy, it fits. There's, you know, the, all the biblical evidence uh, or all what the Bible says, is show, you know, it fits the evidence. And he declared, you know, it, it, uh, 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 the, the archaeology at Jericho as fitting the biblical pattern. Kathleen Kenyon came along and said, no, I don't think so. And it gets complicated, but what she did, her whole argument just to get this out of my system, because it's just hurting me right now. So let me just say this, and then we'll move on. But her whole argument was an argument from silence. In other words, she can't deny that there's pottery there from 1400s. Now, she doesn't like talking about it, right? But it's well-documented, because John Garstang documented it. You can go there today. Remember this? Uh, (laughs) Joel Kramer has a fun story where he talks about this, because everybody says Jericho... You know, because they they go with Kathleen Kenyon's dates. So they say Jericho was destroyed, you know, 1200s, not 1400s. The Bible can't be right. So Joel Kramer one day, he goes in, he wasn't supposed to do this, but he starts digging in the tell of Jericho. He digs for 10 minutes, finds a dozen pieces of pottery, takes that pottery to his professor, which is, you know, one of the head archaeologists in Israel today. Takes him over and he says, date that pottery for me. The guy looked at it, and he says, well, where would it come from? He says, I'm not going to tell you where it came from. You just tell me where it dates from. And he's like, no, it doesn't work that way. Tell me where it came from. And they wrangled back and forth for a while. Joel says, all right, I got it from Jericho. He says, you what? He says, surely this didn't come from Jericho. He says, yeah, I dug it out myself. And he says, well, it dates the 1400s. Right? But that's not acceptable in the academia. So he's not allowed to say that. Does that make sense? Does that happen today, right? Can, can truth be suppressed because it's not in vogue in the academy, right? Oh, yeah, we could get lost in that, right? But that's, but that's, you know, that's another whole story for another time. But the point is that pottery was there, but what Kenyon based her date upon was she was looking for a specific type of, I think it was Cyprian porcelain, right, from the island of Cyprus, and she just assumed that because jericho was a prosperous city surely they would have this fancy pottery there she never found it so she says well then it because it's not there we're going to change the dates does that make sense so she's basing it upon an argument from silence something she didn't find rather than what she did find there and everybody just accepted it so anyways so but again the archaeology the uh, as I say in the previous slide, when interpreted correctly, the archaeology fits. Not only at Jericho, but also Ai and Hatsor, which we talked about earlier. hatsor ironically, has, or appropriately, has two burn layers. There is one in the 1200s, which everyone points to and says that's the conquest, but the Bible says that that's the judges' period. That's when Deborah right, and, and Barak defeat Sisera, and it says explicitly in the book of Judges they went up and they burned hatsor But if you keep digging down deeper, there's another burn layer, which is a couple hundred years earlier, right, which fits to the conquest period. Does that make sense? All right, so so the archaeology argument is again, according to the early date theory, the archaeological destruction layers in the 1200s, again, would date to the Judges' period, not the period of the conquest. And so as a result, uh, we, we can explain away all of their. Their argumentation based upon the uh, the archaeological evidence. Okay, third major piece of evidence is the Amarna letters. Third major piece of evidence that that uh, helps demonstrate the early date is the Amarna letters. Now, this one is also very controversial, right? Because they just uh, secular archaeologists do not like to admit that the Bible is right. But what are the Amarna, Amarna letters? The Amarna Letters is a a collection of 350 cuneiform tablets and they date to the 1300s BC and they contain correspondence between various rulers of Canaanite cities and the pharaohs from Amenhotep III, Amenhotep IV, which is also known as Akhenaten. If you've ever heard his name before, I throw his name around every once in a while. Uh, Akhenaten is an interesting character. Uh, then smen Kura, or something like that, and then King Tut, Tutankhamun. In other words, these four pharaohs are the pharaohs that are writing letters back and forth to rulers of cities in Canaan. That's what the Amarna letters are. Now, they're called the Amarna letters because they were discovered in Amarna, Egypt, which at that time, right, in Akhenaten's day, it was the capital of Egypt, Right? It was one of the main outposts where they were corresponding with the Canaanite cities. Does that make sense? So, their letters, their correspondence. Now, this is fascinating. Um, again, though hotly debated, these letters describe the fall of several Canaanite cities to an invading force that the letters call the Apiru. Now, this is again highly debated. But there's many conservative scholars that argue that the word apiru is merely another way of saying, right? It's a mispronunciation of Hebrew. If that's the case, then these letters are clearly describing Israel's conquest of Canaan. And this evidence, again, argues decisively for an early date because they were written before the late date theory proposes the exodus even occurred. Does that make sense? If these letters are written in the 1300s and they're saying the Exodus didn't even happen for another 100 years, then how do you explain this? This is why they write it off. And they say, well, the Amarna letters are talking about somebody else. The Apiru, and if you get into this, then the, all the literature will argue that the Apiru is a Semitic tribe, but somewhere, they're not Israel, right? But it's from somewhere else. And that's how they'll they'll argue what the, because we have the evidence, there was an Apiru invasion force coming into Canaan in the 1300s that was, you know, destroying Canaanite cities. And the Canaanite cities were looking for help. So who do they write to for help? <laughs> they write to their Egyptian overlords. And they say to the Egyptians, come help us. But the Egyptians never did. Interesting. Makes you wonder why, right? But again, if you understand the timeline and you, say, and you grant at least the possibility that the Apiru are Hebrews then it fits perfectly. That we have the Egyptian hierarchy unable to respond to a military threat, uninterested in responding to a military threat. Why? In Canaan, because they just went through the exodus. Right? <laughs> I mean, they just went through the 10 plagues, and they don't want to touch those people, right? Um, so, so they're they're leaving their city-states in Canaan to fend for themselves. And these Canaanite cities are falling one by one to the Aperu. All right, does that make sense? Fits really well. Um, Again, final piece of evidence is we go back to the Merneptus stela. Again, I kind of already mentioned this a moment ago, but just notice the timeline. According to the early date theory, this view also acknowledges the Merneptah stela, right? We can't dismiss it because it's there. But it argues that Israel must have already been an established people group in Canaan for Merneptah to boast about defeating them in battle. The Merneptah the stela, dating to right around 1208 BC, records Israel's presence in the land of Canaan as a people. But it does not allow enough time for Israel to have left Egypt, travel in the Sinai, wander in the wilderness for 40 years, conquer Canaan, and then to encounter Merneptah you know, when he invades Canaan. Does that make sense? In other words, the timeline for the late date theorist, doesn't fit quite as well as they, they would like to say it does. Because if Merneptah is the, the pharaoh of the Exodus, he doesn't rule that long, right? We know when he started ruling and when he dies. And not only does he not rule that long, but he, he, he wouldn't, you know, because he doesn't rule that long, he wouldn't have enough time to allow the 40 years wandering in the wilderness the conquest of Canaan, which takes seven years on its own, then after all of that, for him to invade and find Israel in the land to conquer them. Does that make sense? In other words, it doesn't fit the late date theory. You actually have to back it up to the early date theory to make any sense of the Merneptha Stella. Are you with me on that? Any questions about that? A lot of information. <clears throat> You can have these notes if you want, right? I'm trying to boil them down, really, you know. Like I said, volumes are written upon this. But as you can see, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very clearly a, uh, an early date guy. I, I, my proposed position is that we the late date theory ought to be rejected uh, as a mere fabrication of secular archaeologists whose subjective findings cannot outweigh the authority and authenticity of the Bible. In other words, if I'm, if I'm going to hang my hat on a biblical reference or Kathleen Kenyon, then, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with the Bible. Even if the rest of modern archeology span says Kathleen Kenyon had it right, when there's plenty of other archeologists that disagree with her, and there's the Bible that disagrees with her, right? So, so I think, again, in summary, the, the early date uh, ought be the accepted position by Bible scholars, because this is, again, the, 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 the clear biblical evidence. Sure, we can argue and quibble about different chronological issues that, you know, different pieces of evidence and how they might fit in to the overall story, but I don't think we should abandon the biblical chronology that is clearly stated in the text in order to try and, you know, base our theory upon a subjective piece of evidence that could be interpreted more than one way. Does that make sense? So, questions about that, thoughts on that? This is a huge subject, but I want to leave some room for questions. Catherine, then we'll come up. Yeah, Catherine. Catherine two hundred years different yep no that's a great question so that's one of the big arguments of the i didn't include it but in the late or the early date theory it fits because the bible gives us several markers in the book of judges Exactly. And then we have uh, really the primary piece of chronological data given to us is in Jephthah's arguments in in Judges chapter 11. He argues and he says there were 300 years since our children, you know, since our our forefathers came out of Egypt. So it's like, wait a minute, if you believe in the late date theory and Israel doesn't even get into Canaan until 1250, when do you, you, you only have a couple hundred years there to squeeze 300 years of judges into 200 years before we get to David. Because David, Saul, David, Solomon, those are hard data points. We know when they ruled because of the Assyrian lists. And we can, you know, and then the Bible tells us how long they ruled, etc. cetera. We can back them up, and we know right when they ruled. So it doesn't afford enough time for the judges' time period. Does that make sense? So again, they just try and quibble with that. And they say, well, maybe the judges recorded it wrong. Or they, they, the other big argument is that they overlap. You know, that 40 years here, 60 years there, but those aren't to be taken, you know, sequentially and add them up, but they're overlapping time periods. And to a degree, there probably was some overlap in the reporting, but you can't get around the clear statement of Jephthah says it's been 300 years. You see what I'm saying? So in other words, it does, it, it messes everything up forward, you know, for you know, the chronology if you hold to that late-date theory. Then, then other biblical data points no longer fit into the system. But if you back it up to the early date theory, a couple hundred years earlier, now you afford time for everything the Bible says happened during that time, and it, it fits. If that make sense? And you could back it up the other way, too, because we can back up and date when Abraham lived. We can date the 400, you know an 80year time period from the Exodus to Solomon, but we can also go 4:30 from the Exodus back. You know, to Abraham. But if you if you go to with the late date theory in the twelve hundreds, it messes up those dates as well. Does that make sense? So it does. It, it matters a lot. That two hundred years changes quite a bit. Gordy, you got a thought, and then we'll go back. Yeah, I just have a question. <clears throat> that four hundred and eighty years prior to Solomon's fourth reign, is there a biblical verse that says that? Or where's that number coming from? The four eighty? Yeah. So that's first Kings uh six one. So let me pull that back up. um. Around. I'll find the slide in just a second. Right there, First Kings six one. Okay. I yeah, First Kings six one is our clearest biblical chronology notation that it says explicitly. Fourth year of Solomon's rule was 480 years after the Exodus. Yeah. And then again, we, we go to the Assyrian records. We find out fourth year of Solomon's rule 966. Now we back it up 480 years 1446. That's where we get it. Bob. Yeah, I know there's a debate on where the crossing was, correct? Yes, yeah. And so does that kind of play into how people are able to massage that date? Because, archaeologically speaking, like for instance, that document. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing, right. So. Yeah, that we'll talk about that, that more at the... That helps them do the goalposts a little bit, I guess. Yep, absolutely. Well, and that's the thing. <clears throat> and again, Joel Kramer makes a big deal of this in our, in our archaeology class. He hammered this over and over and over again. He's like, without a written document, whether it's the Bible or something else, sure. right? Like, I mean, Homer's Iliad. There's people that have re- read Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, and they do archaeology based on it. And they go, but the point is they have a map. They have a document that's telling you roughly where to look, what to look for, what you should find when you find it. And so then you have a, you have a map. You have a, you know, but if all you do, if you throw away the document and you just dig in the dirt, all you find is, is pottery and bones and, and walls, rocks. That's it. You can't interpret it unless you find a, you know, an inscription buried. Sometimes that happens where you, you're digging around and then, boom, you find the Amarna letters, yeah, you know, so and it's like you red red can red 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 read it. Red, that one red granite that was on the Saudi Arabian side. They hacked it off. You could see where it was, but it was, it was supposedly Hebrew writing in that. Maybe that's why I got hacked off. Yeah, right, that's true. And that is happening, right, where some of these, yeah, archaeological discoveries are being defaced. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, that's where it can get, you know, really subjective if they want it to. Is because all they do is they say, well, we believe the evidence over the text. Well, the evidence makes no sense without the text. Right? I mean, and Joel Kramer is always making the point he's like, try and put the the puzzle together without the top of the box. Like, you don't even know what the picture is supposed to look like. You know, so where do you start? You know, and that's the thing is, and that's, but in archaeology, a text always trumps, you know, because it helps. Interpret the evidence. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so they go hand in hand. But in modern archaeology, because they want to spend so much time discrediting the Bible, they'll say, well, the evidence trumps the text, the Bible. And it's like, but, you know, like I said, the irony of that statement is like Jericho is a perfect example. They wouldn't have even known that there was a city called Jericho, let alone where to look, were it not mentioned in the Bible. Was that the whole thing with the walls falling? For the yep, exactly. Exactly. So you need the text, a text, and it doesn't have to be the Bible. It could be, like I said, an ancient text of any form. But it, it has to tell you what to look for, and then that's how you can authenticate archaeology. You say, okay, we have a text that tells us the city is supposed to be here. We'll find you know, a destruction layer here. We'll find you know, a, a habitation layer here. Then we dig in the tell. Oh, it matches. This must be the place. It must be, you know, and now we can see, we can interpret the evidence through the lens of the text. If you throw out the text, it's just a pile of dirt. Yeah, that's why I always have these, uh, these movies or these stories about hidden treasure. It always starts with a map. It starts so with a map. Had, somebody had some knowledge about something that was hidden, and they try to find where that sort of disciple um, was, somebody told them whether it's a map. Or... That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Indiana Jones. That's right. Was there another hand up? Yeah. I have a question. So, um, did I misunderstand, or what did you say at the beginning about evangelicals um, being more late date and not early date? Is that what you said at the beginning? I just wanted mm-hmm. to make sure that I was understanding that clearly. Um, so that they're basically saying that the Bible can be trusted trusted in regard to Jesus, but it can't necessarily be trusted as a historical document. Mm-hmm. Is that? And why why would they do? I would think they'd want to be on the side. <laughs> Of the whole thing being true, I'm just confused as to why that was... Again, it's, it's a, I mean, there's different reasons, but it's a peer pressure issue. Because there's been so much scholarship, you know, because again, and, it, and it's part of not just biblical scholarship, but it's, you know, the academia in general, right? We've elevated, since the Enlightenment, we've elevated science as the one trustworthy way to find truth and we've diminished the value of, of the ancient text. So that's where they, they label archaeology as a science. Therefore, it's untouchable. It's up here. You don't argue with science, but you can argue with the text. But that's where it's really subjective because archaeology is not, you know, it's not the same as like a, a science in, you know, a laboratory, you know, uh, ex- an experiment. And- yeah, it's not the same. Um, because where you're making observations and then reproducing that experiment and getting the same results every time, it doesn't. That, archaeology in that sense doesn't fit the same. But even there, we believing you know the testimony of Scripture would say, well, there's also things that science can't explain, right? There is such a thing as the supernatural, etc. But that idea of elevating the science, elevating the archaeologists that cannot, you know, again they can say no wrong. It's kind of like the Kathleen Kenyon. Well, if she says it, it must be true. And then so much of scholarship, you know, in order to not be shamed to death, right, by the academic world says, well, you know, maybe the Bible's just not recorded correctly there. Or maybe there's a different way to explain that. Does that make sense? It's the same thing with the evolutionary creation debate. A lot of, you know, Bible believers will still say, but maybe Genesis just got it wrong, like you know because they 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 caved to the pressure of the evolutionists that are saying right. it has to be this way. What's that? Follow the science. Exactly. <laughs> Follow the science. <laughs> well, right. And, uh, so I mean, I, and maybe I just camp? Like, in my mind I was thinking like like, Yeah. Not, I, I no, we we would be. I mean, so that's a long hard story. Sure. If so you get to the, <clears <just> <clears throat> throat> Yeah, so if sure. you get if you look at American Christianity, right, and that's because really that's what we're talking about, the history of, of Christianity in America, and you go from, like, First Great Awakening, Second Great, Great Awakening, you have the Layman's Prayer Revival, you have this, you know, Sunday School movement, D.L. Moody, you have then you have the, the modern kind of casting of evangelicalism. Um, there's, it's a long story, but you have then divides in late 1800s, early 1900s, Christianity began to segment quite a bit because of the liberalism that was coming out of Germany and the Enlightenment that was doing exactly what we're talking about. They're saying, well, science, you know, because Darwin happened, right? So they say Darwin cannot be wrong, so the Bible is wrong. And, that, and so you had this, this paradigm shift in, in academia, and it happened in the middle 1800s, primarily in Germany. Then they export that to America. Then you have these divides. You have liberals that just buy it. Hook, line, and sinker. That's still the mainstream liberal denominations. Then you have the fundamentalists that pull away from that. We would be part of the fundamentalist. You know, that's our history. This church would be the fundamentalists that say, hey, I don't care what the higher critics of Germany are saying. The Bible is true. I'm going to believe it. Well, then you have this segmenting too much where the fundamentalists became known as the fightin' fundies, and they just, you know, they just were mad at everybody and they were fighting you know and so you had this uh this guy that came out and he said and he coined the term he says and he was he was a fundamentalist but he says we can't be hiding in our holes away from the rest of the world so he says we need and he coined the term we need a new evangelical well from there forward he started a movement known as new evangelicalism and so that has then of course you know evolved but he was defining it as someone who believes in the gospel uh, regarding, you know, the, by grace through faith, so not Catholic, so they believed in the evangel. And then traditionally, it also had a, a belief in the uh, inerrancy of the scripture. But then now, so that was a big camp, right, evangelicalism, because then you got guys like, you know, Billy Sunday, you know, you got guys that, that are popularizing the evangelical movement but then over time that just became a big umbrella word and now inside of that pe- people are still wanting the the term evangelical but they're starting to reject some of the old definition of what an evangelical actually was. So you're right, we would still be called evangelical in its true sense if that makes sense, but there are people that are wanting to still hold on to the title. It's kind of like I mean, don't don't get me, don't misquote me here, but it's kind of like a Mormon who still wants to be called Christian. You see what I'm saying? Like, you look at them, they are not Christian according to the definition of Christianity, but they are still going to hold to that title for whatever reason, though they define it differently. That You know, that's happening a lot within evangelicals. They still want the title, but they'll define it differently. All right, if that makes sense. Kevin. that's a profound observation that is so true that is so true and I'd love to at some point you know because I'm doing a lot of study on it uh, I'd love to do a snapshot of just church history in general American church history in particular Um, when I started getting a grasp of American church history it really helped me understand like just where we're at as a culture you know where we're at You know, just like, like I said, our church, where do we fit in the stream of American history, Uh, you know, American church history? And why, you know, is there a church down the street that is totally different, right? Well, you understand church, you know, American church history, you can explain all that, right? And it's like, and it was really helpful for me to start learning, you know, these labels, where do they come from, how do they change? Because the labels today don't necessarily mean what they used to mean, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago, you know, and so it's like... Yeah, it can become a muddled mess sometimes, but it's insightful because it helps just us understand who we are and why we stand for what we stand for. If that makes sense. Yeah, sure. But I'd like to do yeah a series on that sometime. It's in yeah it's in the the lineup. It's in the queue somewhere, sometime, twenty years from now. No, Go good. So, what's the number one argument you get when you're talking to other Christian scholars and they profess? What's the number one thing that they said? This is, this is the one I'm going to die by. So, uh, well, it <laughs> depends on who you talk to. Joel Kramer went over to Israel, and he asked that same question, and they said Jericho. Mm-hmm. They said the number one... That's based on pottery. And it's based on Kathleen Kenyon's dating of, the, of what she didn't find there, the pottery in Jericho. Exactly. But that, you're right. But that's, that's their golden fleece. They say, you want to disprove the Bible? Archaeology of Jericho disproves the Bible. But then, and that's the whole point of Joel. So J- Joel Kramer said, well, I'm going to do a video on that. Like, if that's the the number one way to disprove the Bible, I'm going to look at that. And then he dug into it, and he was like, literally dug into it. And he said, man, like, I don't know why they're arguing this. He's like, because all the evidence is on the side of the Bible. You know, And he and he's just, but there's just so much misinformation and suppression of information that it was just... So yeah, so the big one is the archaeology argument. That's that's the one that comes up the most. And okay. and they just say, Go read Finkelstein, go read Kenyon, go read these big name archaeologists, and they all say the conquest happened in the twelve hundreds. So if the conquest happened in the twelve hundreds, Exodus has to be in the twelve hundreds. And what's your answer? Go read like did you have like a specific person that you turn to and say, Well, have you read like, crane? Yeah, so I mean when it comes to the archaeology, I mean I'd just because he's, he's contemporary and he's, you know, as in still alive, <laughs> and you can talk to him and, you know, he's doing current stuff, mm-hmm. Joel Kramer, yeah, um, he would then point to guys like John Garstang and guys that are dead, but they have they did the hard work early on, and, um, and then just current, you know, They're evidence. Recorded, so. Yeah, so it's hard to get a hold of. So when I took my class from Joel Kramer, we had to read John Garstang's book. There's no copies of John Garstang's book. We had to get on archive.org and read a digital copy of John Garstang's book. And it was one of those things where there was a waiting list. Like, I wanted to read it, but someone else was reading it. And I'm like, it's a digital copy. Like, why don't I, why can't we both read it at the same time? But it's like a library. You had to, like, check it in, check it out. And that was the only one that I could find. But I'm sure you can find it in a used bookstore somewhere. I don't even know if you can... Well, now it's got to be past copyright, so I wonder if you couldn't just print it off. I don't know, but yeah, Garstang—he's got some cool stuff. You know, like that was a fun book to read because, you know, it was his archaeology, you know, of the Bible lands. And he had some cool, you know, insights and stuff from, for mainly Joshua, you know, Book of Joshua and Judges period. But have you thought about putting a library in here? Yes. So that we can have those kinds of resources mm-hmm. and access them? Yeah, actually, we're uh, <laughs> we're Steve. It's on our to-do list. <laughs> we, what, we'd li- what we'd like to do is that uh, upstairs, you know, when you walk in the old foyer mm-hmm. and uh, we've got the counter space there, we'd like to build shelving units up there. And we used to have a library down here. Um, never really got used, but we turned it into an office. Mm-hmm. But we'd like to do kind of like a, a bookstore slash library. You know. mm-hmm. But yeah, if you want modern, you know, I'd say Joel Kramer is you know kind of a a go-to because he's a a christian but he believes in biblical inerrancy there's no modern archaeologist that believes in biblical inerrancy except for him that i'm aware of and that he's aware of so it's like you know there it's you know he's like the unicorn of archaeologists you know what i'm saying yeah exactly yep yep he's fundamental he's solid believes in biblical inerrancy and uh yeah he's he's he would be a good source and he's a credentialed archaeologist. So in the eyes of secular archaeologists, he's gone and dotted the I's and crossed the T's. He's done the schooling. He's credentialed. He's studied under all the eminent you know, scholars of today. So they don't like him very much because he keeps saying, well, the Bible must be right. right? I mean, he's kind of like the thorn in their side, but, but still, he's credentialed, and he's starting to get published. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend him. First and foremost, he's accessible, right? Yeah. And he has an Amazon number one best selling archaeology book, When Heaven Came Down. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Where Heaven Came Down or Where God Came Down, something like that. Yeah, I got a copy of it. That'd be one to put in the library. But where he talks through, and he doesn't do all of them, but he, I don't know, he looks at like 18, 20 different biblical sites. And it good pictures, good documentation, where he just walks you through these locations. And it's really helpful. But one of his big things is he, he also traces the history of it. You know, so like, because a lot of these sites, you were mentioned in Lazarus's tomb. Well, that's been remembered and commemorated in different branches of Christianity for centuries. In other words, he's a big proponent of that. He's like, those early Christians, particularly in Constantine's era, they came in and to commemorate these sacred sites, they built temples, or they built churches, and they built monuments, he says, and so we can go back and we can find these monuments or we can find the ruins of these monuments and we can find those biblical sites because they were commemorated. Not that all of them were correct, right? There's sometimes they got the wrong spot. <laughs> but but, he's, like, but he's, he's a big promoter of that. He's like, look at church history. Like this, this has been remembered, you know, but it's modernly you know, denied or ignored or suppressed. But it's really only been since establishment of Israel, 1950s. Because politically, it's no longer politically correct to say the Bible's right, the Jews were historically in the land. So, so much of modern academia is just marshaled against that idea because of the political ramifications of it. Yeah. It's really frustrating. Yeah, Carl. So why is everybody against you know, England <clears throat> given Israel their? oh boy (laughs) (laughs) no yeah do you want the long answer or the short answer so yeah we don't want we don't we don't want to follow our leadership yeah well so again I can give you the short version I did I'd encourage you I I do have uh, a series of lectures on this a few years ago On a Wednesday night, we did a snapshot. I called it uh, Patterns and Prophecy, where we did a snapshot of the history of Israel because the Bible gives us the history of Israel in advance. It prophesies it in in Deuteronomy 32, Leviticus 26, a bunch of places. It tells us what will happen in Israel's history before it happens. So then we we read those texts. We worked through those texts. Then we just did a snapshot of Israel's history. And I gave, I don't know, i would go back and look, probably three lectures, maybe four, to that idea of the establishment of Israel, you know, what how they got the land, you know, from the Brits, the British mandate, and then, you know, then all the chaos that has ensued since then because of the Palestinian claims, but they're rewriting history. Right? So like Yasser Arafat, don't get me started, but he just he rewrote history. He just flat lied. And what's fascinating is it's parallel to the Bible. So I, I encourage you if you want to understand the modern Palestinian-Jewish debate, read Judges chapter 11. In Judges 11, you have the wicked king coming against Japheth saying, get out of my land, I was there first. Mm -hmm. And Jephthah gives him a history lesson. He says, no you weren't, you weren't here first. He says, and when you were here, we beat you. Like, we conquered you. So it's no longer yours, it's our land. And we've been here for 300 years. And now you're coming in claiming it was yours, asking us to leave. That's exactly what's happened in the modern Palestinian movement. Is there, they, because what actually happened, it was it was a barren wasteland. Nobody lived there until the Zionist movement came in. Yeah. And what happened is they were starting to relocate certain Jews there, and they showed up, and they drained the swamps, and they started cultivating the land, So then neighboring Arab tribes started coming in because there was work to be had. There was money to be had because the Jews were reclaiming the land slowly but surely. So then when Israel became a state, there was now Jews and Arabs living side by side, but the Jews were acknowledged as a state, and the Arabs said, well, wait, we were here first. And it's like, no, you weren't here first, you know, because they're rewriting history. Does that make sense? And so, but, but the UN and, you know, most American presidents have fallen for that. You know, and, and, but like Yasser Arafat and that whole PLO movement, Palestinian, you know, liberation organization. I mean, they're just rewriting history. But that's the thing. So like when the Muslims are controlling the Temple Mount, remember this was a big stink a few years back? They started digging underneath the Temple Mount to build a mosque. And it's there. They finished the project. But they were pulling out artifacts and dirt by truckloads from underneath the Temple Mount, but they were not allowing, you know, people, they were throwing stuff away. They weren't allowing it to be examined because there's Jewish artifacts there that prove a Jewish presence to the land, but that's against, that's not politically correct for them to say that. Does that make sense? So they're hiding, they're suppressing that evidence because they're claiming greater antiquity in the land than the Jew. But here's the irony. When did Islam even you know, become a thing? Right? <laughs> 600 A.D. Right? I mean, it's like, anyways. I mean, they're just totally rewriting history. But, can that happen? Is that happening in our culture? Yeah, where people say, I don't like the story, so I'm going to invent my own and rewrite history and use it as a political weapon. It's the same thing happening. Right? Which is why we've got to be people of the book. Right? We've got to know what God says and but anyways. Copies, not yeah, right. Hard are copies digital, are good. Digital copies are being rewritten. So it's true, it's digital true. Copies. Digital copies can be updated. are all being updated, all the digital copies. Of which books? Oh. So Chocolate Factory, BFG, James oh, okay. being the, the digital copies. The digital yeah. copies. Yeah, because they're no longer politically correct. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have an old copy of those books. An old hard copy. Yeah, that's true. But there you go. Controlling information flow. Right? That's how it's done. We're way over time. But this was fun. I just want you to know, I quit 10 minutes early for questions, and then we went for like 30 minutes on questions. So I'm just saying, it wasn't all my fault. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Okay, let's close in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up for tonight. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. We pray... For your guidance, Lord, as we study your word, as we attempt to hold to its truth in spite of the enormous amounts of attacks against your word, denials of its truth, and inerrancy and authenticity. And Lord, some caving, even within our own camp, uh, people that are that are believers. I think they, they understand and hold to the gospel, and yet they're surrendering uh, an understanding and belief in biblical inerrancy and willing to to cave to... Various scientific authorities et cetera lord we're we're wounded by that we're burdened by that. we pray that you would help us to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Lord might we be faithful to you and to your word to understand it to know it, to live it, to give it all for your glory, so we commit ourselves to you to that end by your grace in christ's name amen.